Hello and welcome to this podcast, Raptor Rambles, brought to you by Raptor Aid, a UK-based charity that focuses on bird of prey conservation and education. I'll be your host, Jimmy Hill, founder of Raptor Aid, and I look forward to sharing lots of interesting things about the world of birds of prey with you. Okay, welcome everyone to the next episode of Raptor Rambles with me, Jimmy, from Raptor Aid. Uh, A very excited Jimmy because I'm about to introduce you to a gentleman that I followed his work for a number of years. We were just talking off before we started about how how here in the UK we we got drip-fed little nuggets of news and information about Jonathan Slat's work out in in the far parts of Russia. So let me introduce Jonathan Slat to the podcast, who uh, we're talking to now in America. You're you're in your home home country at the moment, aren't you, Jonathan? That's right, Jim. I'm in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It's nice to be here. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. So uh, those people who've, who've never heard of Jonathan, I don't know where you've been, because if you're into owls, then you need to have heard of Jonathan, because he's been working on the Blakinson's fish owl for over 10 years now. Is that right? It's been about 15. Yeah, I started in um, putting the project together in about 2005 and started on the ground in earnest in 2006. Okay, well, we're gonna we're gonna talk all things fish owl today. But I, as I mentioned, and people will probably get the the running theme of of this podcast. Now, we always start at the beginning. So, in your own words, Jonathan, explain to people how you who or what got you into nature, and then by all means, give us a full run through up into studying the fish owl. Yeah, I I feel like I've been interested in nature my my whole life. I mean, there was no specific epiphany there that turned me on to to nature but with respect to birds specifically um, you know all through you know growing up as a child uh, even going through high school I never really liked birds to be quite honest I was more of a mammal person you know mammals they show affection they're they're soft they're they're cuddly and you know birds are birds are birds you know they're they're much more primal I guess um And I remember uh, my first year at university, I had a, um, a friend from high school visited me. And this is, he's still a good friend today. Um, and we'd always had this sort of rivalry, you know, friendly rivalry, but a rivalry. If I did something, then he wanted to do it better. If he did something, I wanted to do it better. And we're walking along um, the, the college campus. He says, oh, that's a blah, blah, blah bird. And I look over and I, I look at it. And I realize that, you know, I don't, I don't know what that bird is. And like, wait, he's into bird watching now? So I felt like I felt obligated to go to a used bookstore and buy a field guide just so I could keep up. And, and that's, that's how my interest in birds started. And of course, once you get into it, you really start to, you know, then you start to really appreciate birds. And yeah. so that, that was the start of, of my path there. And he's a, he's a herpetologist now. He's a professor at a, at a university in, uh, in Pennsylvania. Brilliant. Um, so I, I, I kind of stuck with the birds and he, uh, he diversified to, to other, other species. Um, and so I always considered birds as, as a hobby. Uh, you know, I'm interested in, you know, bird watching, looking at them, learning about their behavior, but you know, nothing, I never thought that it would be something that I would do professionally. And I remember you know, after college, I was, uh, I spent a year living in Alaska and I was reading a book called uh, uh, Ravens in Winter by Bernd Heinrich who's a, um, he's a professor at the University of Vermont. And, and that whole book is about his field study of 
raven uh, behavior in, in winter and how he take graduate students up to his cabin, they drink beer and stay up all night at, you know, minus whatever, watching these, uh, these, these ravens strut around deer carcasses. And it was just, just fascinating and really like, oh, wait, you know, pe people can do this. People can make this, this as a job. And then I ended up going to the Russian Far East for uh, the Peace Corps, which is, you know, I spent, I was there for three years uh, doing some English teaching, but also leading children on, uh, I worked for an ecology club. So I was taking kids bird watching and Brilliant. basic ecology lessons. And I'd actually been going, my interest in Russia uh, predated that. So I'll kind of back up and then uh, come back. The, the, the storylines will converge. Yeah. Um, my father was a, a, a diplomat, a United States diplomat. Um, so I grew up in different countries. I mean, the first five years of my life were in Spanish speaking countries. I was in Uruguay and, and Panama. So I, I spoke Spanish before I spoke English. Uh, and so I was I'm used to bouncing around and learning new languages. Uh, and then in the early 1990s, when I was still a, a, a teenager, uh, my father was stationed in Moscow. And so uh, he was offered the position when it was still the Soviet Union. And by the time we got there, it was already Russia because right, right on the line when it, when it collapsed. So that was my interest, in, or, and so I started to study Russian just because of that. It's just new country, new, new language, this is what I'm gonna do now. But I never had any interest in Russia, the country per se, until I traveled to the Far East for the first time, really accompanying my father on a business trip uh, in, in 1995, yep. and was just blown away by the landscape there, by the nature. So uh, I was already a bird watcher then, and so just landing on the ground and just spending some time in the forest was just, you know, really incredible diversity of, of birds there and very and so many of them are, are unknown there's not a lot of information about these birds and so you know fast forward to the peace corps days you know I'm, I'm living in these small villages i'm interacting with ornithologists that work at some of these nature reserves and i'm understanding like wait a minute there's a tremendous amount of work that can happen on these birds here there's so much that's not known there are so few professionals working over here I can do this. I can combine my knowledge of the region, of the language, and of birds, and you know, bring a new perspective uh, to the study uh, by bringing in you know uh, Western methodologies, for example, um, and really make some advances. And so that's when I ended up going to, to graduate school um, in the early 2000s, 2002, I believe it was. Um, so I first did just a study of uh, songbirds in. Korean pine forest so the influence of selective logging on these forest bird communities yeah and you know, to be honest like that was it was a really fun study I really enjoyed it it's just a lot of you know sitting in the dark you know as as bird people do listening to, to bird songs in in the, in the morning uh and it was great but no one wanted to fund it it was very difficult to raise funds for you know these these tiny little birds flitting around unseen in Russian canopies like <laughs> that just doesn't interest people so what I, uh, when I was looking into ideas for a PhD, I wanted something that, well, first of all, would have a conservation impact. So like whatever I did would result in a, you know, some beneficial outcome for the species or for the region. But I also wanted it to be something that was charismatic, something that I could get funding for, like much, much easier than for these, uh, for the songbirds. Yeah. And so I, I narrowed it down to two species. It was the hooded crane, um, and the blackest into the shell. So uh, both are fairly poorly known. I mean, the, the hooded crane is, uh, it's, it's a relatively small crane species that breeds in these high elevation larch bogs. So pretty remote places. And what we knew about the fish owl was that also you know, very remote. 
river valleys. And I remember I was uh, over there in, in Russia. There was a, a few day period where a friend and I had some free time and we were going to hike, do this. I, don't, I forget how far it was exactly. It was 40 or 50 kilometers. We wanted to do in just, just a few days, kind of hike out, to, you know, kind of cross this ridge, hike yeah. through this large bog to this salt lick where there's a, there's a cabin and just you know, spend, spend, you know, 12, 12 hours there seeing what comes by, you know, deer, maybe there'd be a tiger, maybe there'd be bears. So, uh, you know, as I, as I'm on this hike, it was July, uh, middle of the, middle of the summer, um, you know, the large bog is, uh, it's a very wet landscape, uh, open, uh, open large forest. So these spindly larch here and there, it was very, very hot. And, you know, you're kind of jumping from grassy hummock to grassy hummock to, to get anywhere. Yeah. And if, if you slip a little bit, you fall to your knees, sometimes even deeper into this muck and you have to pull yourself out. It's awful. And the whole time there's a, there's a cloud of insects, of, of biting <laughs> insects that's, that's found you and is chasing you. And it's kind of, but they're, you know, but they're little and they have these tiny little wings and they can't quite keep up as long as you're keeping a good pace. But the second you pause at one hummock, I'm like, okay, do I go left? Do I go right? Do I go straight? This cloud almost hits you in the back of the head, surrounds you and starts, you wow. Biting your eyelids and your ears, and and then of course you do fall uh, in, into the muck. And so as I'm kind of recovering from this trip with you know all these, you know, all these uh, you know, puffy face from all these insect bites, it's like you know th this is hooded crane habitat, right? Like do do I really want to do this for five years? I mean, no, <laughs> I mean, I'd, I'd much rather be up all night chasing owls. And so that was the that's the decision process that led to me studying fish owls for for my PhD rather than than the hooded crane. It was just a, it was, it was very pragmatic. What did you, um, a really simple question. What did you study at university? What, what did you graduate with then at university before you did your PhD? Just anyone interested? Yeah. So my, my undergraduate degree was in Russian language with a minor in environmental studies, which I think okay. tells you like how far along in the process I was before I, I, I thought to take the science part or the bird part actually seriously. Yeah. You know, I was good at languages. Um, so that's why I started university just doing the Russian stuff. Um, so it's really, and it, it did cause some problems and then getting into a graduate program in science uh, because without an undergraduate degree, um, you know, I had a few people tell me, okay, great. Uh, your, your project sounds good. You know, go back get an undergraduate degree and then let's talk. And so uh, it was, um, I, in the Peace Corps, I met some uh, American tiger researchers who uh, worked for the Wildlife Conservation Society. So they were over there already doing work. They just happened to live in the same village they did during the Peace Corps. And they were able to really um, help me in, the, in applying for graduate schools, like write very strong letters of recommendation and saying like, look, we know this guy doesn't have uh, the degree that someone would typically have to enter yeah. one of these programs, but we've worked with him. Uh, we've, he's volunteered on our tiger work in the field. We know what he's like in the field. He's reliable and he speaks Russian and he can handle the significant discomforts involved in any kind of field work out there. So please give this guy a chance. He's worth it. And that, that was how I was able to get into graduate school. And then I, you know, my first few years, of course, I took, uh, I was, in many cases, the only graduate student in the class of undergraduates, because it's you know it's more of the a lot of the basic background uh, coursework that I had neglected as an undergraduate student. I mean that's a really that's really nice to hear because as I mentioned to you before we started recording that we I get a lot of academics but mature 
as well students who come to me and ask so it's really refreshing to hear about your undergrad but your volunteering work that you did which obviously stood you in good stead to then go on and and you know put you in a put you in a strong position to actually get access um yeah i think uh, i think it's, it's important you know, I, I do feel you know people especially as undergraduates uh by the time they finish their degrees they often feel pigeonholed by what they've done because they entered the the university maybe not really knowing what they wanted to do um and so yeah i think it's a good example of you know you can pivot you can switch um it's not you're not pigeonholed Brilliant. Now, you met, obviously, you mentioned an organisation there, the Wildlife Conservation Society, who now you work for. Am I right? I do, yes. Explain a little bit about how you found your way into that in a bit more detail. Sure. So they, uh, so the organisation, I mean, they provided significant logistical support um, for both my master's work and for my PhD. You know, they, they have a research station that's in this small village called Ternay, where all their, their tiger work is based out of. But it was also really kind of a home base for, for the fish owl work as, as well. Um, and, you know, as I was uh, ending, finishing my, my program, uh, my graduate program, you know, they, they just offered me a job. Um, it's, it's the kind of organization that doesn't often post job announcements. They more find someone who does something that they like and try to recruit them into the, into the fold. And I think I just, you know, over the years, I just established myself as someone who can do decent work and in Russia and, and put up with the conditions. So um, I think it was a, it was a win-win for, for me and, and for them. Brilliant. Oh, and so my, my current position is, uh, my title is the Russia and Northeast Asia Coordinator. So uh, a fair bit of what I do is just sit at my computer. You know, it's you know, at this point, um, it's uh, a lot of grant work. So writing grants, uh, you know, seeking sources for the funding. All my, my entire salary is, is from the grants that I write um, for all, all of our tiger work, our bear work, our owl work, our leopard yeah. work, all of that is largely come, you know, goes through, through my hands in one way or another. Um, so that's, not great, but I still I still do. Uh, I'm still involved with the owl work. I still uh, do um, collaborative work with my Russian colleagues. Um, yeah. I don't get into the field as much as I'd like to, but that's just a function of getting older and taking on more responsibilities. <laughs> um, and I also uh, work with our Arctic program as well, not just our Russia program. And my, the Arctic work is largely coordinating uh, avian conservation along the East Asian Australasian Flyway. So yep. it's not not just in the Arctic, not just in Russia, but you know all the way down to you know, the mudflats of Cambodia and Bangladesh and Myanmar. Right. Okay. Well, you mentioned uh, you mentioned the owls. I, obviously, I've got a copy of the book here. So one of the reasons I wanted to get you on is because obviously you've recently had your first. It is your first book, isn't it? Published um, Owls of the Eastern Ice. So that I, we might share the videos from these interviews. So apologies, this doesn't really work on a podcast, but I've got a copy of the the the, the British or the UK version um, of Owls in the Eastern Ice, the quest to find and save the world's largest owl. Um, now I'm going to ask you this question in a minute, but I actually, before I, before I ask you that question, I've got to say congratulations 
because I believe you won Times, the Times Nature Book of the Year. Thank you. I did. Which is which is fantastic. And in fact, I have got, let me get my phone, because I did take a screenshot of it. I think I should probably read, read this out. Times Nature Book of the Year, Owls of the Eastern Ice, The Quest to Find and Save the World's Largest Owl by Jonathan C. Slatt. And I'll read, I'll read what they put. I know you shared it on Twitter the other day, but uh, yeah, this is an epic tale of hangovers, violence, and obsessive ornithology. Mythology. Owls of the Eastern Ice is the story of Jonathan C. Slatt's quest to find the extraordinary Blakiston's fish owl before its remote habitat is in the frozen east of Russia is destroyed. It is a superb depiction of a far-flung corner of the world where bears, tigers and men battle with a relentless environment and each other. It is a powerful antidote to saturine nature writing. Slat encounters such a host of pickled, gritty characters that you could imagine the Coen brothers adapting it for the screen. It's brilliant. Now, very, very gracious write up. Yeah. <laughs> now, that obviously, you can comment on what you feel in, in a moment. My opinion of it is I absolutely love it. Reading it, it felt like I was there with you. It honestly felt like I was I was either sat in the hut um, with the hermit. Was he called Antony? Anatoly, yeah. yeah. Or you know, even in the in the tent in the freezing cold when you're trying to trap the owls, it just felt like I was there with you. It was brilliant. So let's talk about the owl, um, and we'll sort of meld it in with the book. Now, the first question I want to ask you about the owl, which is a really probably you've answered it a million times, but it's a question that I used to get answered asked a lot. Sorry, is and on the front of the cover is the quest to find and save the world's largest owl. So. Obviously, to most people, if you said, oh, what's the world's largest owl? Here in the UK, most people know what the Eurasian or the European <laughs> eagle owl is because it's it's a relatively common species in captivity, you know, in zoos yeah. and collections. Um, how does that come about? How did it come about you obviously putting it out there and, and saying to everyone, hold on a minute, there's another owl. This owl is the biggest in the world. Just explain that a little bit, people. I do get some pushback sometimes, but that, that's part of the, a little bit part of the fun is sort of, because it, it does, you know, people have their own impressions of things. And then when you say something else that, that kind of triggers an interest to, you know, confront it and maybe, maybe learn more, you know, there are, you know, so few fish owls have ever been captured and weighed and there's almost none in captivity. So it's, it's always been a species that's difficult to, to compare to. And it's really only because of, uh, the work we've been doing in Russia, where we have really put together some kind of reasonable sample. I mean, there's there's birds in Japan that are weighed, of course, but it's 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 harder to to, to really count those because a number of those are are they're captive birds, so it's it's not necessarily birds um, in the wild. They're not wild weights. So I mean, we've had um, and I actually had um, a number of backs and forths with uh, Hymomicula who's uh owl guy who's who's i believe in the uk now which well which we're trying to fully enough to interrupt we're trying to get um Hymo onto this i've asked him three times now and he is but because of covid he's hiding in his cabin with bad wi-fi so we can't get him on yet so he's yeah but anyway sorry carry on well, if, if we do get him on i'd be interested to hear uh his his response to your question uh i'll put it so, to him uh, because, you know, so I would say, well, I have these birds that weigh this. And he'd come back and say, well, I have ones that say this. I'm like, well, look, like I'm, you know, I'm beating you by 100 grams. And then he'd come back and be like, well, I just found this, this old record from 72. And he'd send me some <laughs> publication where 
he had one that was actually 100 grams more. Uh, but we just um, recently, within the last um, uh, the last year, we we weighed a female who came in at 5.2 kilograms, oh. which just which just blew blew his out of the water. To, to be <laughs> frank, uh, so and so what I've been you know I, I think the most diplomatic way to say it is you know the average weight I think of all the weighed fish owls versus the, the eagle owls is you know the fish owl is clearly has a has a, a higher average weight, and then also I think. Um, there hasn't been an eagle owl that, that's weighs more than 5.2 as far as I know. Um, right. So for now, I'm sticking with uh, the fish owl being the largest. Uh, stick with a cup. Well, it's on the front cover now, so it's got to stick. It's got... yeah, <laughs> okay. So mention the first time you saw, tell us a little bit about the first time you saw a, a fish owl. Um, but okay. then also, if you want to talk a little bit about the, the very little that was understood about the owls and obviously the reason for your work, the conservation efforts. Okay. Yeah. So actually the first time I'd really heard of a fish owl was, um, you know, I mentioned I visited Vladivostok or Primoria in 1995. And, um, I, as, as a, uh, I stayed with a Russian family there and as a kind of a, you know, departure gift, they, they gave me this, uh, they, uh, they went to some bookstore and found an old, uh, bird book, you know, kind of like a photo album in you know, one of these table tabletop books called yeah. birds of the Usuri Taiga by, uh, by an ornithologist, a famous Russian ornithologist named um, Yuri Pukinsky. So this was a you know, 1982 edition or something. And just really, you know, a nice uh, overview of the birds found in the region. Uh, most, you know, combination of color, black and white photos. And the section that, that caught my attention the most was, you know, just fish owl, you know, Rybny Filin. And here's this enormous, enormous owl. And the you know, pictures are grainy black and white photos. And it just kind of, you know, alert lurking out behind a tree and one picture is holding a frog and has these you know a huge salmon next to it and i was just like what is this thing you know i never it never occurred to me that owls ate fish and much less giant fish and then also lived in these you know really really remote areas and so you know when i went back there for the peace corps you know this this bird was in the back of my mind as sort of the you know a, a grail bird for me like yeah. you know, i'm never going to see it like yes i'm in the right region but it can't be the right i'm never going to be remote enough to, to actually see one of these and then in the year 2000 so in the peace corps uh living in this relatively small village of just a few thousand people uh in in what i thought was you know too far south of fish out range like i thought i was a few hundred kilometers south of where they might even uh, start to appear and there was this huge bird just like right on the edge of the village you know i was uh you know i was walking in the forest i wasn't walking in the village but i was you know you could hear trucks you could hear dogs barking um and i just my brain wouldn't let me believe that it was a fish owl uh, i just assumed it was a euro asian eagle owl because they're they're also found in that habitat yeah. uh and they're you know they're much more common but i had, i had a camera and i took pictures um but you know this was you know pre-digital days so uh, it took several weeks for me to get that film into vladivostok which was from that place about a four-hour bus ride get the film developed and, and look at it and it was only really when I was able to look at the photos and compare it to other images. It's like, wait a minute, you know, this is not a Eurasian eagle owl. This, I think this is a fish owl. Um, and so it was just an amazing moment, uh, really an, an epiphany that like, you know, these things, I can see these things. Uh, and so, so when I was, you know, five years later, when I'm thinking about a graduate project, I never would have considered doing the fish owl if I hadn't seen it there that one time yeah, yeah. and understood that it is actually accessible. It's not myth it's not mythical it's real 
obviously that yeah that leads on to to um to yeah working on fish house so what was what was the initial or what was the whole premise of of going on and and, and studying fish house obviously you mentioned you know very elusive very very little understood about them and certainly biometrics and you know trapping of the owls to to understand that sort of thing so just touch on what was the what was the idea really what was what was the plan yeah so the the, the general premise was that so these these birds are endangered you know they're fe- they're listed uh by law in russia as as a you know, a, 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 a red book species so legally they they can't be injured and their habitat can't be destroyed uh, but in order to uh, know where their habitat is, there has to be some kind of conservation plan. You have to have some idea about where they actually are, and that didn't exist. And so uh, natural resource extraction in the region really started to kick up after the fall of the Soviet Union. I mean, the, the, the forests were uh, you know, in the northern part of, the, of, of Primoria, where the owls were, were thought to be, there just wasn't, there weren't really any roads. And so if there aren't any roads, there aren't gonna be that many people that aren't gonna be these problems with, um, there aren't gonna be these conflicts with, with humans. And uh, so as, as an example, I, I did a, um, a remote sensing study. So I looked at satellite images from 1984 and compared those to 2005, just looking at the road network in Taranay County, just you know the Northern part of the province and where most of the book takes place. And there were fewer than, I'm gonna use miles here, um, I apologize, uh, fewer than 150 miles of road in the county in 1984 versus 3000 miles of road in that same area just 20 years later. Yeah. So there's clearly this just explosion of uh, road, uh, road access. It's, it's all, they're all logging roads. Um, and so you go from almost you know, no chance of, of conflict with humans to just this great, great, great potential for it and no plan to mitigate uh, the conflict. And so that, that's the premise is let's find some birds, uh, let's put, catch them, put GPSs on their backs and learn where they're going and use that information to identify what parts of the landscape are important for them and then use that information to put together a conservation plan that we can share with industry like loggers so they know where they shouldn't be logging uh, etc. I don't even know where to start with asking you how do you go about and do this and obviously I've read the book and really anyone listening to this you have to go and read the book if you haven't already to to really get a, a proper feel of of what's you know what Jonathan's achieved with his with his work on the fish house but I mean my my first thought is being a Westerner, living in the UK, I've never been to Russia. I've met very few Russians, in fact. We we did on our, our podcast, we interviewed um, or we chatted to Eugene Potapov, Dr. or Professor Eugene Potapov. Um, I mean, that was an experience, just chatting to him over Zoom. He was, you know, that was that was full on, that was. Um, so even understanding what it's like t- from a Western point of view to go out to somewhere so remote and really what would be a, to me would probably, if you drop me in Russia it would be a very alien world I imagine to what to what I'm used to but then add on top of that finding one of the rarest owls in the world in freezing cold conditions I I'm going to leave it to you Jonathan I, I think I'm, it's an tell yeah try and describe a bit to, to people what it's what it's like working out there and, and trying to find this owl okay well first um I, I do want to uh, give it a, a um 
mention uh, Eugene Potapov because he was an early uh, supporter of this project. So when I was in graduate school, running Brilliant. around trying to find funding for it, you know, he's he was he he, he tried to help. So that was um, I've known him for a number of years. Um, so and I will also say that everything I that I did and still do with these birds is very much a collaboration. Uh, I mean, I you know I would have been like you, honestly, uh, just clueless um, if I didn't have uh, the direct support and collaboration with two Sergeys, uh, Sergei Sormich, who's an ornithologist at the Russian Academy of Sciences um, in Vladivostok, and Sergei Abdeyuk, who's this sort of professional woodsman. Um, and so all, and so these two guys had been working together for um, their uh, their in-laws. Um, uh, Sergei Abdeyuk married, well, I won't get into it, but they're, um, <laughs> so they've been working, they're, and they're good friends, and they've been working together for about a decade, um, uh, kind of somewhat casually looking for fish owls and they're finding nests. Um, they'd been out together at one point, um, you know, camping along a riverbank, and you know, came, you know, randomly came across a, a fledgling kind of uh, wandering around the, sh the shrubbery next to a river. So that, that kind of sparked their interest in the species. Because yeah. um, then, then they were able to find the nest tree. So, so, they, you know, so they were able to get, uh, they were able to they put together these mental images of fish owl habitat, of what a nest tree might look like. So yeah, so if it had been just me dropped off there, I'd, you know, I'd still be wandering around the forest looking for a fish owl nest tree. Uh, but, you know, so they were able to, you know, help you know, clue me in on what we need to look for, what we need to listen for, you know, how to find fish owl sign, and where to look for marks of their you know, tracks in the snow or feathers clinging to branches. Um, so yeah, that, that was key having that, uh, that trust and it's, it's been a long-term collaboration. I'm, I consider both of them friends. One of the main aims of, of the study from what I gather reading the book is first of all, finding where fish owls are, which you would achieve by walking transects, listening, listening for owls calling. So just explain a little bit about that and the hardships and, and how that how that worked. And then we can move on to the trapping, which was even harder still. But yeah. Yes. So uh, and the you know the, the book is essentially broken into the three phases of, of the graduate project. You know, the, the first part was really this, this this bit about getting me, you know, dipping my dipping my toes in the fish owl waters and understanding what their habitat is, you know, starting to understand their mindset and, and uh Etc. Uh, and that was just this pretty, pretty gnarly two-week expedition um, to a, a northern part of the province, uh, which was uh, um, exciting. There was a lot of melting, uh, melting water and, and breaking ice and mad dashes for the coast before we got stranded uh, along a along a river. Um, and then the second phase was uh, more casual um, in that it was just it was warm. It was already spring. It wasn't winter anymore. Um, trying to build a study population. So part one was, what's a fish shell? Where does it live? What does it sound like? Part two was, okay, now I'm going to find some specific birds that we can try to catch for part three, for the third phase of the project. Um, and that was really just driving around that road network I mentioned a, a moment ago with, with Sergey and his truck, revisiting some of these sites that he, where he had found birds in the past and also um, looking for, for new birds. And we came up with, I want to say, I want to say about a dozen, I'd have to check my notes, um, potential places where we could begin trapping in, in early winter of 2007. Just talking about the, the part one that you, you touched on there, that, and again, it's, it, the book really spells it out well, takes you, takes you 
onto it. You're working in the winter and you're you're trying to get all your work done before um, essentially it starts thawing out. That, that's right. So you're working on snow and ice. And, and the aim is to get yeah. as much data or knowledge or information before it thaws out. I remember reading in the book now, there's some pretty gnarly parts where... I forget what what's the name of the machines like the 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 sort of um, skidoos or what what the the motorized yeah when you tr when you're trying to get and you just basically I've got to drive through this and hope that I don't sink sort of things just oh, the knowledge yeah 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 knowledge yeah just just explain to some of the people what a simple question how cold did it get in winter what what sort of temperatures were you working in. Yeah, well, the, the winter uh, over there is it, get, it gets quite cold. I mean, it's uh, the minus thirties are, are normal. Um, <laughs> there's usually a few weeks. There's usually a few weeks in uh, in in winter, usually in February, that it'll get right around minus forty. But wow. most mostly, I'd say, um, you know, my, you know, overnights of of the low minus thirties is is pretty normal. And yeah, and so the challenge of that first part, this expedition that you're talking about, is you know there were no roads there at the time. So I and there's there's uh, two villages in this river drainage in the very north of the province. There's one on the coast and there's one about 80 kilometers inland. And so the plan was for us to start at that upper village, and then you know, drive these snowmobiles down the coast 80 kilometers. Uh, and so the team there were there were four of us total. Three of them got there by taking a boat. Uh, up the coast, you know, with a cargo ship with with the snowmobiles uh, to this coastal village, and then kind of going upriver, dropping off, you know, food and uh, fuel caches along the way, where they met me. And I flew in by helicopter, right. and we started going down. But there were delays because of winter weather; the helicopter couldn't come in, and so we really started too late. And yeah, things were melting, as you said. Uh, there, there were there were periods where we'd be you know, motoring along, and you hear this noise and look behind you and this you know, the entire you know this huge patch of ice just like you know, falls into the into the river uh and there were actually we, we found out later that the locals because every you know these this is this, these are villages of just a few hundred people so everybody knew we were there and what we were doing and they were taking bets on if we'd make it or not uh, and we were the because any any trap any travel in the drainage is is by river either you're on a snowmobile in winter or you're you're taking a boat in summer and there's not much travel in spring or autumn because of the this, the, the dangerous conditions of, of the river at that time. And so we ended up being, we were the last people uh, to take that trip that season uh, yeah. from, uh, from Agzu down to, down to Samarga. Someone had tried to go after us and they had to turn back because it was, there was too much open water. Um, so, you know, we were, yeah, we just, uh, you know, uh, people who knew how to look for owls, or at least the other three Russians on, on the crew uh, were experienced in that way. But none of us were really none. None of us had really been there before, or knew yeah. really what to expect, and it was uh, it was exciting. <laughs> what um, it's just mention then? I, I'm sure you can recall this. What's it like then to sit? I, I've I've monitored owls before in in the UK, um, so not quite as extreme. But what's it like to sit in a, a forest in you know in Russia, Far East? And hear a fish owl call for the first first time. What's what's that like? So the first one I heard, I wasn't even sure it was a fish owl. Honestly, um, their their vocalizations are very very uh, they're very low frequencies and they yeah. carry a very long distance. So that that first one I heard was certainly a few kilometers away, and it was, it was really like you know I had to have Sergey tell me like yes that's that's a fish owl. Um, 
but yeah, it's just a, and as I learned later that, uh, that once I uh, understood what it sounds like and how to listen for it, I could hear them from, from Ternay. Um, you know, this place that I'd, I'd, I'd lived there in the Peace Corps, I'd never heard of fish owl, but like, once you know what to listen for, um, you can, you can pick it out because there's, you know, from the village, you know, there's barking dogs, there's uh, diesel trucks going by, there's a diesel generator you know, powering the town and you can, it's very easy to miss. Um, so it's a very, very subtle, very, um, uh, it's, it's a sound that blends in with, with, with many other sounds. Uh, yeah. Now, one of the, one of the things I love about my work monitoring birds of prey um, is meeting so many so many different people, so many characters. I mean, things like this, getting to talk to yourself. Reading your book, there is a lifetime's worth of characters, it seems, that you'd probably never need to do another project or travel anywhere else. Just talk about what it's like to once, you know, meet people um, like the, we mentioned the hermit, Antelai, um, in the hut, uh, sleeping in the back of a, a, what is a former military truck, was it? The, uh, yeah. the Gas 66. Right. What, what's that like in, in, a, in a remote place as well? D did, it help, did it help you that you obviously had a lot of experience being in Russia and you spoke Russian or was that, it didn't really matter actually. It depends on the person, the character and who you are. You know, I, I think it, you know, uh, it's, it's the kind of thing that you're best uh, conditioned to rather than sort of going in blind. Uh, right. So a lot of the third part of the book is me and Sergei and you know two to four other Russians just living in this truck next to a river in the middle of winter while we you know work, work out of the area uh, trying to catch owls. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, being in the Peace Corps there really helped me understand what life is like. Uh, it's there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, you never know waking up what's going to happen. Um, plans change on a uh, very, very quickly. And also I think the area is populated by a lot of self-sufficient people who are weird. I mean, there's, there's something about, I don't know if the, if the landscape changes people or it attracts weird people, but I mean, Anatoly is a great example. I mean, he'd been living alone at an abandoned hydroelectric station for about a decade before he, he ran into us or we ran into him. Uh, I knew a very, very nice, very nice man. Just really, uh, he let us, you know, st stay with him uh, while we, uh, there were two, two fish out territories um, right nearby. So he let us uh, work out of his cabin, which gave us a warm place to sleep. But yeah, there's just a lot of, a lot of eccentrics out there. Uh, th this is it. But also the other thing that, that I, I don't think I could have done it because of the alcohol as well. I mean, I I like a drink. I like a drink, but the in some of the first part of the book, I think you talk about when you're first out there in the 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 bottle of, of is, is it vodka or is it ethanol or whatever you're drinking so, comes out, and I think, well, I'd be I'd be out at the first hurdle with that. What what what's that what's that like? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 part of field work over there. I mean, I think um, you know Russia was a tough place in the '90s, um, you know, economically socially and that that bled into the 2000s a bit when when this book play, takes place and it's you know the, the economic situation is better and as economic situations improve so do things like like drinking um but in these very very rural areas um, there are a lot of a lot of drinking customs in russia and if you're a guest you're kind of expected to play that role 
And yeah, it's, it's challenging at times. I was, I got off a little easier at times because I could just sort of beg off as the, as the, the weird and experienced foreigner and kind of yeah put, put some of that just on Sergey's shoulders. Uh, but yeah, it's just, so when, when I, um, you know, when Sergey and I would plan for a field season, uh, we'd say, okay, so we're, we're you know, trying to figure out how much food we needed, how much fuel we needed to go to some of these remote areas. Yeah. We'd be like, okay, so we've got, all right, we need to do uh, four days of field work. So, so allocate X number of days for field work, maybe two days for, for bad weather, and then one day for drinking. You know, it, was, it, was, it was part of our, uh, it was part of our calculations yeah, for how yeah. we were going to do work because, you know, so, someone important stops by the field camp and you just kind of have to drink with them or otherwise, you know, you won't be able to work in the area. Well, yeah, I suppose you've got to be, it's a bit like, yeah, you've got, you, you've got to work, you're, you're working with them and you're dependent on them to some extent. Uh, well, to a large extent, I suppose in, in these remote areas. So yeah, you've got to yeah. fit in and, um, yeah, get involved. Uh, I love that, that you've got to build into food rationing and field work days and then a, a day of drinking. I was thinking more a day for hangover. But anyway, that, sorry, I, t I told you this was going to be random. You've probably not been asked about the alcohol before. But uh, anyway, back back to the owls then, because one of the most exciting parts of the book is when it comes to trapping the owls. Mm -hmm. uh, so just if you, without giving too much away from from the book for anyone who need who has to read the book or hasn't read the book yet just talk about a little bit about the trapping because no one had really done it before had they I, you mentioned something about J japan they'd study they were studying fish hours but they am i right they weren't really giving out any much information to you so yeah there's probably some expertise in japan that we just didn't have access to because you know it's it, uh, the Japanese fish owl biologists, who I, I know some of them now, we have nice professional relationships um, and personal relationships. Uh, you know, they're very concerned about the, the birds being disturbed because there's so few in Japan. There's now, I want to say fewer than 200, which is a great conservation success because there were fewer than 100 at, in the 1980s. Okay. Uh, but they're just really worried about these birds being disturbed. And so to have a random stranger <laughs> write them and say, hey, how do you catch a fish owl? <laughs> They, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't get responses. Yeah. Um, and also for the most part, they were, uh, they weren't doing a lot of adult captures in Japan. They're mostly capturing nestlings and fledglings by the nest. And they're just, they're just too worried about damaging a, a breeding bird uh, because there were so few. And yeah, so we didn't really know what to do or how to catch them. Uh, I mean, as, as, as I'm sure you know, I mean, diff different species react differently to different traps. Some things work, some things don't. Yeah. Um, so I talked to a, a U.S. raptor capture specialist named Pete Bloom. He's in he's in California. So he gave me some ideas. He's like, "Okay, try this, try that, try that." So you know, I I brought over a you know a manual on uh, raptor capture techniques um, and different materials for different traps, and just went out in the woods uh, with all these things and Sergey in a tent and tried to figure it out. And it was a a pretty dreadful uh, first field season, uh, you know, just trying to trying different combinations of things. So hearing these these owls hooting at night, and then waking up and checking our traps, and you know, nothing, no interest. Meanwhile, we're in a tent um, at minus thirty, um, so we're not getting sleep. It's cold, and we're not catching anything. Um, so it was pretty dreadful. Uh, by the end of the like right at the end of the of the first season, we figured out you know a combination of things that worked and. We're then able to, to 
uh, to catch some birds. We caught four uh, by the end of our first field season, which was, that was the target I was looking for. So we met that, um, but for most of, you know, J uh, January, February, and March of 2007, I was wondering what I was doing in the woods and what, 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 what was my PhD going to project? What, yeah. what was my project going to be if I couldn't catch any fish owls? Now, obviously I'm going to ask you the same question that I asked you about the hearing a fish owl. What is it like to finally get out the tent? You know, I, I'm talking because I've read the book, rush down and, and you've got a fish owl. What was, I mean, I don't even know how you can describe how that must have felt. Yeah, I mean, it was surreal, I guess, is that because we'd, we'd had a number of near misses um, where we you know, we actually did get an owl that came into our trap, but for, you know, uh, you know um, amateur error, you know, something I'd overlooked something that was just a fatal flaw that, that allowed the owl to escape. So, yeah, I would say, you know, being able to actually get up there and not have an owl fly away as we approach, but to actually, you know, grab it was... Yeah, very, I, I, I can't describe it. Um, yeah. what, what I will say is that almost immediately thereafter, um, you know, 30, 30 seconds to a minute in, uh, both Sergey and I just you know, switched on automatic pilot and yeah. got out the, the data collection forms that have been gathering dust uh, <laughs> for, for, uh, for the whole season and just started working. You know, Sergey has, has handled and banded and measured hundreds of birds. Um, I, I didn't have much experience at the time, but I had some training yeah. at the University of Minnesota in, in that type of work. And yeah, we just got down to business. Um, and the, the first bird took more than an hour to, to process, but by the end, it was, it was an hour um, to go through everything. To go from taking a bird out of the trap to releasing it was about an hour. And I won't, I, I won't say too much because again, because of the book, um, I don't want to spoil it, but it, it wasn't all plain sailing from there either. Obviously, you ta you started tagging as in fitting. Well, it was radio transmitters, wasn't it, first of all, before GPS. Right. I, I won't right. say any more than that, but just for anyone, yeah, it's not all plain sailing once they start trapping owls. <laughs> and things things don't go to, yeah, the, yeah, you're not there, are you, when you start getting information back right. that there's problems with that but. We won't, we won't go too much into that because I want people to read the book. Um, yeah. yeah, and honestly, like, one, of, one of my goals of, of writing the book was to give a, an honest depiction of the trial and error that is, that is field work, that is a graduate project. It's, you, know, you go in thinking one thing and you're constantly, you constantly have to shift and pivot and change. And there are moments of joy and uh, pure uh, ecstasy doing field work but um, uh, those are these little blips on a rather uh long roller coaster of uh unpleasant activities and i, I don't know it's you know waiting around uh in the cold for something to happen uh repeating the same thing over and over again I mean, that's just that's just field science yeah sleeping sleeping cheek to jowl with snoring you know comrades or what <laughs> uh -huh. yeah is uh yeah absolutely um so what obviously again with with the work um what's what's left to do or what's what what did you what were you most pleased with 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 what you achieved and, and you found out with your, with your studies first well you know i think that the you know using the information we got from these owls like we did put together a conservation plan that had just outlined a few fairly basic recommendations for um mostly for loggers for the log there's one logging it's the largest logging company in the russian far east 
operates mostly in, in Primoria in, in that province. And so by being able to influence the management of this one company, it's impacts quite a number of fish owls. I mean, well, we believe, um, Sormich and I think there are between 500 and 850 pairs. So yeah. between 1,000 and 100, 900 total. And you know, Primoria we think has, again, I need to check my notes. I want to say about 165 pairs. Yeah. So you know, just, you know, just by influence, influencing the management of one company, we're looking at, you know, it could be, it could be a third of the global population of these birds is being influenced by this. And so uh, the basic thing, the most, I think the most important thing was providing a map showing the logging company the best fish owl habitat, the best combination of old growth forest where, the, where there could be nest trees or these multi-channel rivers, which are really important for the owls to fish. Yeah. And saying like, look, if you're going to put in a road in a, in a river valley, here's where you don't put that road. Um, if, there's a, if there's a nest tree or something, give it a buffer of, of 150 meters. Um, so put, you know, put your road somewhere else. And a lot of these valleys are wide enough or that's, that's just not a problem. So it, it doesn't really influence the bottom line of the logging company if, we, if that's shifted a little bit. And they don't really log these giant trees anyway. They're these big old you know, two, 300 year old uh, cottonwoods and elms that these birds are nesting in. They're commercially useless. So it doesn't impact them that much to not be harvesting those trees. Um, and uh, we've also started putting up nest boxes for these birds. This is, we took this cue from, from our Japanese colleagues where yeah. they've been doing that since the early eighties. Um, and so Sergey and I noticed this was after the book ends you know, in 2015, um, Sergey and I of the Uke noticed that this one ter territory has gone through four nest trees in the period of a decade. And they're still sitting there uh, vocalizing, but they're not breathing because there's no more trees. They're, they're, um, so we put up one of these nest boxes and, and they found it in, in a week and a half. Uh, we put a camera up there to see if they found it and they did. <laughs> I mean, essentially instantly. Right. And they've bred uh, three times in there since then, uh, we produced, produced chicks. So it's, um, you know, I, I, I say this to people that I feel like a lot of jobs, a lot of, uh, what people do, uh, especially in, in our line of work, you can design these studies, uh, you know, put together conservation plans and even implement some of these conservation interventions, but it's hard to know if it's actually doing anything. I mean, there's so many variables in the world that you do like this, are they really, is there, are the populations really going up because of what I'm doing or, or is it something else? Yeah. But by putting these barrels on trees, like we are producing birds, like there are fish owls in the world now because of these things, these pretty simple interventions that Sergey yeah. and I are doing. And that just, it, it feels really good. Yeah, I, I was really, I, it's, it's funny, I was really pleased to read that at the end, that you do mention about them in, at, at the end of the book, because here in, here in the UK, um, the, of the, the four species of owls, well, no, sorry, five species of owls we've got, um, yeah, t uh, three of them use nest boxes, and the barn owl, um, that uh, obviously is found right across the globe uh, extensively. There's extensive nest box schemes. So it was really interesting to read that the largest owl in the world as well will also go obviously in a, in a much larger, but yeah, so I, I was really interested to read that. So it's, uh, and it's great to hear that it's obviously, it's having a fantastic effect on, on them. Um, and as you mentioned, yeah, they, they obviously needed it. The fact that within a, a week, two weeks, that they they took to it, found it, and took to it straight away. So, so brilliant. I, 
And I do think you know, we haven't put up many so far. We've only put up about a dozen and only two of them are being used. Uh, but we're very selective in where we put them. And there are still a lot of good trees there. That's the thing. What we're trying to do is, is to prevent what happened in Japan, where yeah. all the trees got cut down and the population almost went extinct. So uh, it's more, more than anything, we're just demonstrating that this is a viable uh, conservation intervention for, for the species. And yeah, you're right. They're huge. I mean, there's 200 liter barrels. I mean, they're, they're enormous. That's fantastic. Yeah, um, you'll have to put some. You'll have to put a picture up. I'd love to. I'd love to see a picture of, of it. Um, what's What's the future then? What uh, in, in terms of the fish owl? What, what What are the plans or the future plans for the the conservation of the species? Yeah. So um, I've continued doing this work uh, with both the Sergeys you know, uh, since you know when the, 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 my project ended in two thousand. 2010, but every year we're, we're still writing grants, we're still raising funds to do the work. It's, we're, uh, we're definitely doing the minimal because, you know, fish owls are maybe 5% of my job. Uh, you know, Sergei Sormich is, I mean, both the Sergeys are very busy with, with their own things. So we try to do a little bit each year. Um, at this point, we're starting to ramp up and we'd like to do more than just the basics. Um, I'd love to find a graduate student, a couple of graduate students to work on a couple more uh, you'd learn you know, we do all, the data we collected for this for this project as, as described in the book is as you read it's very baseline it's like like where do they go you know it's yeah. not very in-depth so there's so much more research that can be done and I'm hoping that um, uh, that this book will, will help generate interest and we'll be able to um, to do some, some more things Brilliant. well I well I hope there's I hope someone listening to this might take up the baton. But one thing I can guarantee is that if you get some more graduates, Jonathan, I doubt anyone will get a picture as cool as what you've got with that fish out. Now, again, it doesn't really work on a podcast, this, but yeah. if anyone listening, you just need to type in Jonathan Slat fish out into Google images. And it is, I mean, did you did you mean not to smile and look really badass in it? Because obviously you're holding a big owl with a fish in its mouth, in its beak, and you look really like yeah, like a wild man of the woods. Yeah, and part of it is is, is the Russian culture. I mean, uh, Russians historically don't smile in photos, so I have a, yeah. Russians taking my picture, so I'm just not going to smile. <laughs> um, so that was yeah, that was that was part of it. It works. It makes for an it makes for an epic pic, a profile picture as people want nowadays or whatever. Yeah, um, one one final question then, just off you know, because it's been wonderful talking to you about the the full the full journey. Did you you obviously never planned to write a book? What was it like? What was it What was it like putting all this down into into a book? It, it was it was a delight to to put this into a book. Uh, it's the the, the the core of the text came from my my field journals from from those years um and i you know i i wrote in that journal almost every day uh, part part of it was in order to really just take a break from, from everything russian and just think in english and be able to write down some of these observations because you know we really would you can see all these weird people all these weird things that happen in this book and everyone there just thinks it's all normal and so you know being able to record it as okay wait no that thing we did actually was very very strange i want to make a record of it <laughs> and so when i decided a few years ago that that you know maybe i should try to turn this into a book i went back to those um those those notes and they're all on my computer because i was typing them all on my on my laptop uh, in in the in the truck 
and put those together. And that was 40 pages of text right there. And so I then expanded on certain, um, certain episodes, you know, gave it a narrative arc, uh, you know, just background information. And so the book essentially wrote itself in a matter of you know, six months. And yeah. I, was, I, I took photos everywhere over there too. And so those are all cataloged on my, on my computer. So I'd see that I was going into some kind of a cabin, for example, um, in, 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 in the story. And I would just go to the go to my records from then, and then I could describe the cabin exactly what it's like. Um, so I was able to paint those pictures in the book because I had photos to uh, to, to reference. It's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. I've uh, I've told a little lie. There is one other little tiny question, but only because I always I always finish on this question, and I can't not ask you this question. One bit of advice to a graduate or or a budding raptor biologist. I ask this to everyone. What what is your one little nugget of advice? Um, you know, I think I I touched on this a little bit very early on in a conversation, and it's you know don't don't worry about being pigeonholed. Um, I, I talked to graduate students and undergraduates in the United States who, you know, they're, they're bird freaks, you know, all they want to do is birds, but they can't, you know, they can't find a volunteer job that's bird. They can't find a paid internship that's birds. You know, maybe it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's reptiles or it's mammals, but I think it's really important to understand that many of the skills you're learning are transferable among taxa. So even if you can't get a, uh, uh, find work right now doing habitat selection for a bird, but there's an opportunity that you can get for habitat selection for a rodent, do it, get the expertise doing that. And then you'll, you'll be even more qualified for the next bird job that comes up. Yeah. Brilliant. Absolutely. That's great. Well, Jonathan, it's been an absolute pleasure. I knew I would look for, I knew I'd enjoy this one. So um, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to, uh, yeah. to chat to us on Raptor Rambles. Thank you very much. Yep, I do have one, one one plug if possible. I'm not sure when this will air, but I am giving a, a Zoom presentation at uh, Pushkin House in London on December 15th at 6 p.m. So I just have a lot of, I'll be speaking with Sophie Roberts who wrote a really wonderful book called Lost Pianos of Siberia. Uh, but I'll, I'll give a presentation on the owls and show a number of photos uh, from, from the expeditions. So if that interests you or, or your listeners. Well, I'll, I'll put that, I'll share that across our social media okay. anyway, um, to make sure, because people, people will, yeah, they'll, they'll love to, to certainly see some pictures as well. They'll, they'll love that. That's great. Yeah. Right. I'll, um, I'll let you get back to the rest of your day. Thank you very much for your time. Ooh. Great. Thanks, Jimmy. This was fun. Bye. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have, why not give us a subscribe so you don't miss out on the next episode. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the up-to-date news on what's going on with the world of Birds of Prey and Raptor Aid.